good to see all of you this morning. Before I jump in and pray, I want to start out just something random. Um, I, I, I like to give away books, and so I'm going to give away a book this morning. But I'm going to do it, and so the qualifier is you have to be a college student. All right, so uh, Anna, it takes you off the list. I was going to look for someone who has a birthday coming up in the next two weeks. Does anybody in here have two? Oh, we got several. Wow, we got several. Any in the next week? Next week? What, what day? 25th? Ooh, Tuesday. Anybody sooner than the 25th? Oh, when's your 24th? Oh, wow. Maka, that's great, man. Hey, you get <laughs> I was totally expecting like July 15th. I was like, you know, <laughs> that far out. Yeah, that's good. That's a 25th edition copy of the Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's a cla- becoming a classic. It is a classic. So happy birthday coming up. Yeah. So uh, this morning, uh, the gospel according to Nahum. Um, as Anna said, I'm Curtis Black's my wife Leah, and we just moved back to Auburn, what Opelika from Dothan. We were in Dothan the last four and a half years, and so I work here at the hospital, East Alabama, and uh, just a joy to be back in, in this room, be in front of you. Um, before we jump into Nahum, though, I want to open us in prayer as we look at the Word this morning. Lord Jesus, um, you are majestic, you are supreme, you are sovereign. There is none like you. From the rising of the sun to the setting, may your name be praised. We praise you, great God. Thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. And Lord, if we pray that you open our eyes wider to see the wonderful things of your word, as the psalmist says. And Lord, shine into our hearts brighter the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May we leave here this morning more worshipful and reverent. For you are the true God and there is none like you. Open our eyes just to see things in Nahum. Make us marvel at you and worship you. How we love you, King Jesus. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. So the gospel according to Nahum. I know you're in this series. And so I invite you to go ahead and turn there. It's just a, it's a 47 verse book of the Bible. So three chapters, total of 47 verses. Um. The book of Nahum starts out with these words, the Oracle of Nineveh. The Oracle of Nineveh. And two weeks ago, you studied uh, about God and the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. So did you know, here's a random fact, did you know that there are only two books in the Bible that end with a question? Only two books in the Bible, Jonah and Nahum, both of which have Nineveh in its sights as a city. Just a little interesting fact right there. The one thing to note is that Nineveh repented when Jonah walked through the city and preached repentance. And Jonah's, Jonah's um, words were towards Nineveh. Nahum's words are to Judah, about Nineveh. All right, So there's a difference right there. In the book of Jonah, the repentance is found in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, it talks about Jonah's response to God, about the people repenting and God relenting. But we're going to see today that that prophecy of destruction in Jonah, it technically comes true many years later. And you see it foretold in the book of Nahum, and Nineveh is destroyed. Okay, so let's, let's do some historical background before we jump into uh, Nahum. The time of Jonah was mid-8th century B.C., maybe somewhere between 770 and 740 B.C. Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh, so just give you historical context, Syria, their capital is Nineveh. It's not an immediate threat, so 750, 760, not an immediate threat to Israel. But they're enemies nonetheless. So remember, about 740, 750 B.C., 
Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, still going strong. Jonah, after being disobedient, goes to Nineveh and preaches this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And Nineveh and its king, they repent. And God relents of the impending judgment and destruction that was to come. So remember, we're decreasing. I always say it's just important. We're decreasing in numbers as we go through B.C. 50, 740, 730. So by the time you get to 722, what happens? Northern kingdom's overtaken by Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh. So Assyria overtakes Nineveh. I mean, overtakes um, the northern kingdom. And ten tribes are overtaken. That's only a few decades after Jonah's journey through Nineveh. The southern kingdom of Judah still remains, and it will remain until 586 B.C., when not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians come in and take over Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonians. So in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel and their capital of Samaria is overtaken by Assyria and King Shalmaneser V. It's at 722, 701 B.C. Northern kingdom's wiped out. Southern kingdom's still there. 701, Assyria comes to their doors, to, to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom. They're invaded by King Sennacherib of Assyria, and he approaches the walls of Jerusalem, and he taunts King Hezekiah. And here's the taunt. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? So there's this interchange going on in 701 B.C. And in fact, when you get to Nahum's prophecy here, the accusation against Assyria is that they're deceptive. And if you had backed up to 2 Kings 18, they're like, hey, come out, don't listen to your king Hezekiah. Come out, we have cisterns that are full of water, we have grapevines that are lush. It's going to be nice. Well, we know what happens. They come out there, they're going to be killed. And so they don't listen to the king of Assyria at that time. But they're, they're deceptive. And so then... Hezekiah prays to the Lord about this, and here's the Lord's response, 2 Kings 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all the dead bodies. So, 701 B.C., King Sennacherib from Assyria flees back to Nineveh. Lick, licks his wounds, 185,000, they're fallen, and he goes back. And so 701, 690, 680, 670, there's still Judah, southern kingdoms going, there's, Assyria's still an enemy, and most some scholars I read said, you know, uh, uh, Jerusalem... Judah in the time would have been a vassal state to Assyria. They, you know, Assyria calls on them for military purposes. They would have subjected themselves to their rule and authority. But still, they're enemies nonetheless. So still tense. You've got an enemy called Assyria. But they're just kind of quiet a little bit. Historians do tell us though, that even though they did not take over Jerusalem and the southern kingdom in 701, they took over about 50 cities of Judah and crushed those, but not Jerusalem. So now, I'm getting here. We enter into the 7th century B.C., which is 699 to 600. All right, we're getting there. In 663, Assyria travels all the way into Egypt and overtakes the mighty city of Thebes. Thebes. In the text, in Nahum chapter 3, it's referred to as No-Ammon, A-M-O-N. No-Ammon, also known as Thebes. It's situated along, it was situated alongside the Nile River. Thebes was a mighty and large city of its day, supported and fortified by the river. It had many neighboring allies. 
However, they were no match for Assyria. And instead of ruling that city from far away, Assyria burned Thebes to the ground. And all we know of it about it today is what archaeologists, archaeologists and historians tell us. So they go in there, and that's, that's an important date because we know that that occurred in 663, historically. And so that's going to be referenced in Nahum, so it allows us to date the book of Nahum. 663. So the city of Nineveh, at this point, it continues to grow. And here's some specifics about the city by the time Nahum comes on the scene in the 600s. I want to share a few things about Nineveh. The inner city of Nineveh, so inner city, not, not the full city, inner city, was surrounded by an inner wall that was eight miles in circumference. Now, I measured it last night on MapQuest, or on, oh, it's on Google. Uh, Shug Jordan East University is 13 miles around the loop. So the inner city of Nineveh was eight miles. That's the inner city. And the inner wall, had an inner wall, was 100 feet high. Three chariots could run abreast around the wall. It had 1,200 towers and 14 gates. Beyond the inner wall was a much larger outer wall. I don't have dimensions on it. Outside the outer wall was a moat 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. The Tigris River and other surrounding rivers made Nineveh look impregnable. Just a big city. But let me stop here and insert a historical fact. Any of you remember who founded the city of Nineveh? You have to go all the way back to Genesis 10. It was Nimrod. You remember that name, Nimrod? Genesis 10. Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah. And so if you read Genesis 10... He founds Nineveh. But going back to the time of Nahum, Nineveh was known for violence. i got a couple quotes here. Mark Dever puts one. He says, The Assyrians were what Joseph Stalin only aspired to be. When they conquered a city, they would completely depopulate it and then resettle it with people from various other places so that no trouble would ever come to that place again. And that's what the Assyrians were famous for. Wicked. Violent. Here is that they found a monument commemorating the first 18 years of Ashurnasirpal II, king of Assyria, and it said this, it said, 600 warriors of the city of Hulai I put to the sword, 3,000 captives I burned with fire, I did not leave a single one among them alive to serve hostage, their corpses I formed into pillars, their young men and maidens I burned with fire, just violence, Assyria, violent, so here's the thing, it's after 663 when Assyria destroys Thebes, but before 612 B.C., so we know that's what we time it because Nineveh is destroyed in 612. So Nahum's prophecy to, the, to Judah is between 663 and 612, about a 50-year span. So just want to give that historical context right there. So let's look at the text of Nahum. Three chapters here. We're going to read, through, I mean, through the morning, we're going to read all 47 verses. We're going to break it up. At a critical time, Nahum, here's the big thing. At a critical time, Nahum brought a prophetic word from God against Nineveh to encourage Judah to trust God alone. It's going to be easy to say, hey, they're the larger power. Let's just, let's just yield ourselves to them. No, trust God alone. And guess what, Judah? Nineveh's going to be destroyed. What? I mean, that, you got to imagine, I mean, a monstrous city destroyed is what Judah's saying. He's prophesying to Judah here. And I like, John MacArthur has an outline in his study Bible. I really like this after studying it. Chapter 1 is about the destruction that Nineveh declared. It's coming. Chapter 2, destruction of Nineveh detailed. In fact, so this is prophetic. This is, this is what will occur when at the time it's being told and written. And in chapter 3, the destruction of Nineveh demanded. Why is there the destruction coming? What have they done? I've told you a little bit. Violence, bloodthirsty. There's a little bit of what they've done. So this is declared, detailed, demanded. I thought those were just a good summary words right there. Start out in chapter 1, verse 1, knowing that this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. 
the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And so I, I want to say, like, just keep in mind, that's kind of the title. So if, if Nahum's prophesying this or speaking, you're hearing it read, you may not have heard that read. So that's going to come back and tie that in a little bit. So you see the word Nineveh, but Nineveh doesn't show up as a word until chapter 2. So I'll come back and talk about that. Nahum is speaking the words that would have been probably regarded by some as ridiculous. But Nineveh? Nineveh going to be destroyed? I mean, Nahum, surely you've seen Nineveh. Big city, impregnable. Nope, it's going to be destroyed. Let's read chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And I want to say this. Notice the character of God laid out in the opening verses of Nahum's vision. And I want to point out that the subject, I've got an NASB, NASB study Bible. If you have that, I mean, the subject heading is God is awesome. A-W-E-S-O-M-E. I mean, that. just think of the word. We, 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 here in South, we just say awesome, awesome. We use it a lot. But I mean, really, what leaves you standing in awe? God does. God leaves you standing in awe. And I thought it was a great subject heading right here on the top of my study Bible. We're going to read verses 2 through 8. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Just let me stop there. Look at a few things here in the text. Look at verse 2 along by itself. Notice the repetition of the word avenging or vengeance. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Three times it's mentioned there starting out. Three times. Look in verse 3. We read of the Lord being slow to anger. And you see that kind of lived out between the prophecy of Jonah and Nahum. That destruction did not come right away. You see that foretelling but coming true with Nineveh's ultimate destruction. Verse 3 goes on to talk about how God's way is in the whirlwind and storm. And one commentator I read put it like this. He says, the Assyrians may control much of the ancient Near East, but the Lord controls wind and water. Who's supreme here? Who's awesome? Who leaves you standing in awe? God. In verse 3, you see, is the Lord is slow to anger. You see that phrase right there? And also you see, well, by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I don't have time to go into this, but that's... That's pulling from Genesis 34, I'm sorry, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which is also known as the Old Testament riddle. How can God be both compassionate, slow to anger, merciful, but yet would by no means leave the guilty unpunished? Old Testament riddle. Prophets of that day were like, how can he be both? <laughs> well, we know, looking back at the cross, he is. He's both just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ. Just in that he is holy and he must punish sin, and justifier in that he has punished sin crushed his son. And for those of us who look to him in repentance and faith, we are the ones who are spared. And we are recipients of mercy. And so this is all, Nahum's pulling from the Old Testament riddle here, and it's all, like Kevin says in the series, the gospel according to Nahum, it's all pointing to Jesus. <laughs> Ultimate culmination, pointing to Christ. 
I agree with James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, just after reading that text, he says, many people do not like to think of God as a God of wrath. They prefer to think of him as a God of sickly love and sentimental indulgence. What a weakening of the biblical concept of the only true God this is. God is a God of love and mercy, a holy love, and an utterly undeserved and sovereign mercy. But it is also true that God is a God of wrath against sin. You can't properly understand his love unless you understand his wrath. He's just and he will and he must punish sin. He goes on to say, when we think of God taking vengeance, we instinctively react against it, as if this is unjust and uncalled for. But this only shows how insensitive we are to sin, both in ourselves and others. And so that, I think a good book that's helped me just understand the, and just punch against my face and realize I'm like, wow, really? I mean, sin is heinous. Is that Holiness of God book, if, if you get a chance to read that. It's a good, good little read right there. I'm just talking how heinous sin is and how holy God is and that chasm that exists between the two and why I deserve ultimate punish and condemnation because of my sin. But so you read those attributes there and you're like, got to process this. And I want to I list them back up here on the screen because when you start reading chapter 1 and you start seeing these attributes or these traits that are listed here, it's like we can't come up for breath until you get to verse 7. I mean, just, just look back at these. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Think of that. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. And then you get to verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. I commend that verse to your memory. I mean, memorize that verse. That has been a tremendous help for me personally. Since we were in Dothan, our preacher preached on Nahum, and that was a verse he challenged us to memorize, and that has been a really solid. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. It's, Judah, don't take refuge in Assyria. Don't take refuge in other, other powers. Take refuge in God and him alone. That's what Nahum's saying. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. So just ask, let me ask you this. Reading that list, what does it do to you? Are you humbled, broken, worshipful? Are you angry, frustrated, doubtful? God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He is in control. And folks, I will tell you, you can absolutely rest in that. I always use the imagery of whatever going on in life, you know, I, I, it's imagery I've used in the past. It's kind of like um, things we... We see and experience this kind of like the, uh, you ever seen a Persian rug? John MacArthur has this example. A Persian rug, you know, if I had a Persian rug, it's not going to be on the floor, it's going to be hanging on the wall. It's one of those twenty, thirty thousand dollars rugs, been hand woven. And MacArthur says this side of eternity is like the back side of a Persian rug. All these chaotic strings and strands going every which way, that make a lick of sense. But the other side of eternity is the flip side of that Persian rug, this beautiful mosaic. He's doing and working things out. And I may not have a clue what's going on, but I take rest in the fact he's sovereign and supreme and in control. And Nahum's saying, Judah, trust in him. He's good. Take refuge in him. Not yourself. There's my propensity. He's always say probably the, one of the largest sins I have to 
ask for forgiveness for is self-reliance. <laughs> Taking, just relying on myself for things. Don't take, let your refuge be in him, be in God, because he is in control. He is sovereign. I put a few verses up here that have just been helpful for me. Um, Deuteronomy 32, I'll read this one. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. In Proverbs 16, 9, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes or determines his steps. He's sovereign, he's in control, and you see this in, just in the story of Nahum here. So looking back at the text, let's notice the action that is building. And I'm going to put up here on the screen, I know some of you are writing those texts down, Deuteronomy 32, 39, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, and Proverbs 16, 9, if you're trying to grab those. But looking back at the text, look at this action it's building. And, and I kind of put some parentheses at the end. So as, you, as you're reading it, you're like, wait, is he talking to Nineveh? Is Nahum talking, he's talking to Judah, but is he talking about Nineveh? Or is he talking about Judah? And so I, I put this here to kind of help us out, you know, where these words are aimed at. Verse 8, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. That's language directed towards Nineveh here. And then you get to verse 12, next verse. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now... I will break this yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. And this is directed more to Judah here. And then 14, back to Nineveh. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. And then 15, chapter 1 ends. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. You've heard that phrase elsewhere in the scriptures. Feed of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. If you have the NIV, it inserts the word Nineveh and Judah in, there, in some of the texts for you. However, in the Hebrew, we don't read Judah until the verse 15 of chapter 1. And we don't read the word Nineveh until chapter 2, verse 8. So could you imagine hearing this read in Nahum's day? Remember, it's a book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Not having Nineveh or Judah specifically mentioned, it would have read much more suspenseful to the Jew of the day. And Mark Dever remarks, it would have been absorbing and powerful and comes to an end when they learn who God has leveled his sights on and what awful destruction awaits them. So imagine you're, re you're hearing this read and you're like, is he talking about us? Is he talking about Judah? Is he talking about what city is he talking about? And then it comes in. Judah, oh, okay. <laughs> Destruction's coming to Assyria. Wait, to Assyria? Nineveh? Who's in control? God. Trust in him, Judah. Let's keep reading in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is 13 verses long, so I'm going I'm to read and stop at verse 10. Again, this is, this is poetic. I don't see if your, your translations probably have it broken out a little different. It's not just like narrative where it's just, it fills in all the margins, so you've got more poetic structure here. So just no oracles, 
I've heard mostly in the Old Testament oracles have a poetic bent to them. So there's a lot of poetry you see when there's an oracle. And by the way, when it says the oracle of Nineveh, oracle of Nahum, oracle of Nineveh, it's the burden. That word means burden. So chapter 2, verse 1. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches, the shields of his mighty men are colored. Look at this description here. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished. Verse 4, the chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. They're open. The appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry up to her wall. And the mantelet, it's like a covering for a siege. The mantelet is set up. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body. Or it says, anguish is in all the loin. And all their faces are grown pale. Look at the detail. Remember, destruction detailed here. This, this is the chapter 2. It talks about the detail of the destruction. Just little highlights here, a few highlights. Verse 6, the river gates are open. Non-biblical accounts tell us of an unusually large spring rain that swelled the rivers and caused part of Nineveh's, Nineveh's wall to fall and crumble that year. Verse 9, when archaeologists came upon the ruins of Nineveh, they didn't find it until 1842. Nineveh was not found until 1842, the ruins of it. They found no gold or silver. It says, silver, it says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, taken. I just want to highlight verse 10 as I read this. I mean, think, think physically what that must have been like. Chapter 2, verse 10. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Anguish is in the whole body, all the loin, to the core of your being. And all their faces are grown pale. What must that have been like physically? And from what we can tell from the text, this destruction was swift. It came upon them from the Vandic army swift. Let's keep reading verse 11 through 13 to end out the chapter. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's club prowled with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots and smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Lion was a, a, a common metaphor for kingship in Assyria. And so it's, you know, it says, where is the den of the lions? There's destruction coming. This, a pride of lions can just enjoy. They have dominance over the land. Judah's like, no more. I mean, uh, Nahum's like, no more. No more. A few years after the destruction of Nineveh, the last survivors of the Assyrian Empire were killed. So 612, this destruction comes in Nineveh. said by 609, everybody's wiped out. It sounds like this verse here, not Nahum 114, you will have no descendants to bear your name. So remember, Nahum's prophesying between 663 and the destruction of 612. He's somewhere in that time frame. This all comes to fruition and comes to pass later on. So we know, we know now in 2019, looking back on it, 
especially now that the city, the ruins of the city were found in 1842. Say that, yeah, 1842. But think of these words. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am against you. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 5. These words in our, and should be utterly frightening, act of opposition by God. Now go back to talking about that Old Testament riddle. The only way he is not against you and me is if we have trusted solely in the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That is the only way. Let the story of Nahum serve as a reminder for us, for those of us who are in Christ, but also as a parallel for anyone who's not in Christ. I am against you, declares the Lord. Let's go on to chapter 3. I'll read this as a whole. We're going to read all 19 verses right here, okay? You still see the poetic structure of the remaining portion of the book. Verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than no Ammon, that's Thebes, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, part was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubin were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk, you will be hidden. We'll come back to that. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the seed. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick wall, of the brick mold. Their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You've increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. And there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? And Nahum ends with a question. Look at 3.15. There the fire, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like a locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. It's striking to know that the ruins of Nineveh, like I said earlier, were not found until 1842. It was decimated and wiped off the face of the earth for over 2,000 years. Such a great city destroyed. 
Archaeologists reported finding unusually large layers of ash around the excavation site, meaning the city was burned, as Scripture said it would be. The destruction, here i got a quote here from uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he said, the destruction of Nineveh was far greater than that of cities such as Rome and Saigon that have fallen, in fact, probably greater than any city in the entire history of the world. Just put that in perspective for the cities that have fallen. So we're talking earlier about chapter 3, the destruction of Nineveh demanded. I want to kind of give you some sub-points in there to kind of just, just to quickly just show you how this kind of breaks down. What do you mean demanded? Well, because what have they done that's been heinous, that's been sinful? What are some of the things? So just to categorize those, accusation one, you, we read about that. Assyria was a cruel and bloodthirsty nation. Kind of give you some examples of that a little bit earlier. Cruel and bloodthirsty. Accusation number two, Assyria committed spiritual and moral harlotry. Wicked, a wicked nation. In accusation three, Assyria had arrogance and pride. They had not learned from thieves. We're impreg- I mean, just kind of thought about, we're impregnable. Who's going to destroy us? We've got these ramparts, we've got this city, got this wall, got the tigress, got the moat. It's not going to happen. It's pride, it's arrogance. So think long and hard, though, about what the Jews in Jerusalem or in Judah must have been thinking when they considered the perspective of attack from such a power as, as Assyria. Kind of sleeping with one eye open, you know. You just, hey, they they came in 701 when my granddad was alive. You know, there's still power. They've been growing. They they sacked Thebes in 663. Man, they could come any moment. You just worried. They could or would have lived in fear. But you go back to Nahum's charge here, chapter one, verse seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Judah, take refuge in Him. You will see this unfold, and it does unfold in 6.12. It comes to pass. I have personal comfort from this. I mean, questions for myself, do I take refuge in him? Do I rely on my own strength? I mean, that's my propensity is to do so. But let Nahum serve as a reminder for all of us of who is in charge. God is. Even though mighty Nineveh seemed impregnable, it was so utterly destroyed, it was not found for another 2,000 years. And there are no descendants left. So that's kind of the breakdown. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. See, um, I'll go back to the, the titles in here. The destruction, chapter 1, the destruction of Nineveh declared. Chapter 2, the destruction of Nineveh detailed. And number, chapter 3, the destruction of Nineveh demanded. So, how does all this point to Jesus? And I, I could not say this better than there's a Christ-centered exposition commentary on the book of Nahum. It's a newer commentary series. Uh, they had all of them for $5 each when I was at Together for the Gospel last year. There's a great, great commentary set. Um, so they've been publishing these out. I think, I know David Platt's one of the series editors, Danny Aikens, one of the editors. But I, I thought this was so well said, I, I just, I cut and pasted it. So I want you to read this. What is the connection between Nahum's good news and Christian good news? Nahum's message of good news proclaims the salvation of God's people from the oppression of a brutal enemy nation and the return of the Lord. Christian good news is the message that the same God is providing salvation from the brutal oppression of sin through the suffering and sacrifice of Christ our Savior on the cross. Nahum's gospel and the Christian gospel are based on the same premise, God saves sinners. Nahum's good news anticipated the ultimate good news of the Christian gospel. The Christian good news carries Nahum's good news to its ultimate conclusion. All this is pointing to Jesus, pointing to the cross, all the Old Testament. That's why... 
I love this series when Kevin told me what the gospel according to Jonah, gospel according to Micah. All of this is pointing to Christ. I got to think, I mean, I just, I'm going to chase the rabbit because I got, I got a few minutes. I'm going to chase it really quick, go down a rabbit hole. No, no. Um, it's like when I, got, I heard a little excerpt from a Tim Keller sermon one time, and he talks about, you know, the Old Testament is all about, it's pointing, primarily about Christ, God, and what he has done. Not about me. I'm a recipient of this grace, but it's all about him. And he gives it, he just hit me, blindsided. He says, it's the story of David and Goliath about you and how you can slay your giants, or is it the story of, really, it's about how David's victory over the giant Goliath became the people's victory, even though they didn't lift a hand. Now, Christ's victory over the giant of sin and death has become our victory, even though we didn't lift a hand. All this, Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. Story of Nahum, pointing to Jesus. You see right there, just here on the screen, that commentary series, I think, succinctly pulls it together. I'll give you one other thing. Nahum 1.15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Commentary goes on to say, the words of Nahum's herald are ultimately fulfilled in the redemption of the Christian gospel, for the oppressor called sin will be entirely wiped out. I just heard Frank Shaka talk about one time. He said, you know, if you make the Bible into a movie, what would the trailer be? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God's people resting under his perfect rule and reign. Genesis 3, sin enters, cut the trailer off. And you're like, how's that going to be restored? And all the rest of the Bible is unfolding. (laughs) This plan of redemption, these shadows are pointing to the substance, which is Jesus. It's all unfolding. And the final enemy to be defeated is what? Is death. The wages of sin is death. I mean, it's a death is that casualty we see because of sin. Wages of sin is death. And so we see that coming. Final culmination of it. For the oppressor called sin will be entirely wiped out. And we're reminded of this. We see the long suffering of God. We see his patience in here throughout the text of the Old Testament. So I, I put a few discussion questions up here for you or around your table. Have a time discussion. Um, so let me pray for us and then we'll break off into the t- table time.